Welcome to Chamberlain University's MSN CourseCast. Each episode in our series will introduce and discuss key concepts from the modules in one of your courses. These episodes are intended to enhance your learning when you're on the go, so feel free to listen to them anytime and anywhere. Hello and welcome to today's discussion on non-infectious global health concerns and implications. I'm Dr. Mariah Hawken with the MSN Accelerated Track Program here at Chamberlain University. And today we will be talking to Dr. Neil Rosenberg, who is a visiting professor in Chamberlain's MSN Specialty and Accelerated Tracks. Thank you so much for joining this discussion, Dr. Rosenberg. Would you please add to your introduction? Sure, thank you, Dr. Hawken. Um, I appreciate this opportunity. Uh, my professional background of nearly two decades of nursing service includes starting off my career as a labor and delivery nurse and transitioning to a research nurse with a large AIDS clinical trials group. And finally, a nurse educator with various roles from faculty to administration, deaning, things of that nature. Uh, I've been a visiting professor, like you said, at Chamberlain University since January, 2020. And I received my bachelor's, my master's as a nurse educator, and my PhD in theory and research from the University of Missouri-St. Louis. And currently, I'm halfway finished with a master's of science in palliative care from the University of Maryland, Baltimore. So thanks again for having me. Thank you. And we're so excited to um, have you bring your expertise and knowledge to our topic today. And so today we'll be talking about non-infectious health concerns. Non-infectious disease actually makes up the larger proportion of deaths worldwide with heart disease and stroke leading the most common diagnosis. And as our weekly module points out, historically global health efforts have centered on battling the influence of infectious diseases and poverty. However, increasing awareness regarding the impact of other variables such as culture, chronic disease, injury, violence, and mental health serve as an impetus for expanded strategies to tackle these challenges. Much like efforts to battle infection and poverty, collaborative approaches across nations are needed to improve global health outcomes. So, Dr. Rosenberg, what is the difference between chronic illness and disability? How are they similar? Um, and if you could share some examples, that would be wonderful. Sure, sure. So chronic illness, uh, is it's a physical or mental status that persists over a long period of time. And chronic illness can hinder independence and health of people. For individuals with disabilities, it may create additional activity limitations. So people with chronic illness often think that they are free from the illness when they have no symptoms. Having no symptoms, however, does not necessarily mean that chronic illness has disappeared. The good news is that chronic illness can be prevented or controlled through regular participation in physical activity, eating healthy, not smoking, avoiding excessive alcohol consumption. But not every person with a chronic illness is recognized as disabled. So in some cases, the impairments caused by the illness can reach the level of disability, because the illness prevents you from fulfilling daily activities. In others, you may have never had physical impairments severe enough to qualify for disability. So think about like, arthritis, the wear and tear on the joints, the knees, hips, you know, joint pain, suffering uh, after sitting for short periods of time, waking up, 
Another example, cancer, uncontrollable growth of abnormal cells in the body. You know, we could go on and on with uh, infectious, the importance of, of non-infectious when we talk about global health. Another is stroke, so the blockage of blood flow to the brain, heart attack, blockage of blood flow to the heart. Um, these are just a few of the examples that sometimes go, they fly under the radar when we talk about global health because they're not infectious. So um, I hope that gives you a little bit of an insight on, on some examples and what the difference between chronic illness and disability is. Yes, wonderful. Thank you. And I, I appreciate how you commented that just because there's a lack of symptoms or or the person isn't you know experiencing any um, untowards effects that it doesn't mean that chronic illness isn't there so um, I think that's important to to keep in mind um, so how can culture impact the perspectives and practices of individuals experiencing chronic illness or disability? And what are some examples of this as well? Sure. So culture, uh, it's a pattern of ideas, customs, behavior shared by a particular people or society. So it's dynamic yet stable. And health is a cultural concept in that Culture frames and shapes how we perceive, experience, and manage health and illness. People with chronic illness or disabilities, they live in every country, but the degree in which they participate in society, school, work, community life, etc., is significantly influenced by the cultural roles and expectations placed upon them. For example, different cultures have different views of the causes of chronic illness and or disabilities. Some cultures freely combine traditional beliefs with biological models, such as disease degeneration and dysfunction. For example, in Western medicine, health is mainly seen as an absence of disease with focus on biological aspects of life. Whereas in, whereas in Ayurveda, an ancient Indian system of medicine, it views health as a harmony between body, sense, organs, mind, and the world. And also traditional Chinese medicine sees health as a balance between yin and yang or hot and cold qualities of an individual. Thank you. Um, how does violence impact the rates of human injuries? I know we're switching gears a little bit here, um, but want to focus on that, that role of violence and what does violence play when looking at common injuries? What are trends that we're seeing nationwide in terms of types of violence? Sure, so injuries and violence, they're widespread in society, uh, both unintentional injuries and those caused by acts of violence. So many people accept them as accidents, acts of fate, or as part of life. However, most events resulting in injury, disability, or death are predictable and preventable. So, for example, the injury and violence prevention objectives that were in place for 2020 represented a broad range of issues which, if adequately addressed, will improve the global health, injury, and prevention. Numerous determinants or factors can affect the risk of unintentional injury and violence. For example, individual behaviors, the choices people make about individual behaviors, such as alcohol, drug use, risk-taking, they're often connected with factors in the social and physical environment and can increase injuries. We have to also look at the physical environment. 
So the physical environment, both in the home and community, can affect the rate of injuries related to falls, fires, burns, road traffic injuries, drowning, and violence. Access to service is another area we have to look at. So systems created for injury-related care, ranging from pre-hospital and acute care to rehabilitation, can reduce the consequence of injuries, including death and long-term disability. And finally, we have to look at the social environment. So individual social experiences, such as social norms, education, victimization history, social relationships, parental monitoring, supervision of youth, peer group, community environments, such as cohesion in schools, neighborhood, neighborhoods and communities, and then societal level factors, cultural beliefs, attitudes, incentives, and disincentives, laws and regulations. So we have to look at all of these together when we start really looking at race and impact of, um, of violence and, and, and injury on, on, on our, our overall health. Yes, thank you. And I think um, I, was, I was just listening actually to a podcast that was talking about violence and um, violence in our nation and that the statistics are really staggering at how many households um, you know will have either physical or verbal violence that occurs on a daily basis and and it's it's something that we don't really talk about as a nation or a society um, but that we need to bring you know more awareness to um, and you know how how we're cultivating our children in those next generations and and bringing being brought up and in those violent situations so it's something that really as a nurse um to be aware of and to be you know aware of the statistics of violence within our society and within um certain you know cultural pockets as well so thank you again and then now I want to touch on uh, mental health and emotional well-being and how do these um, how do these factors fit in regarding global health concerns and why may mental health be just as important as physical health um, and it says why may mental health but why is mental health just as important as physical health when we consider you know non-infectious global health issues Sure, Dr. Hawkins. But first, I want to, if it's okay, I want to go back and I want to touch on a couple other, you know, really alarming um, trends or statistics on what we were talking about with with violence and injury and, and the intersections with that and how we can even bring disability into that. So, for instance, injuries, both unintentional and violence related, if you believe this, it takes the lives of 4.4 million people around the world each year, and it constitutes nearly 8% of all deaths, just injuries. So in people ages 5 to 29 years, three of the top five causes of death are injury-related, namely road traffic injuries, homicide, and suicide. And injuries and violence are responsible for an estimated 10% of all years lived with disability. And injury and violence place a massive burden on national economies, costing countries billions of dollars each year in healthcare, lost productivity, law enforcement. Preventing injuries and violence will facilitate achievement of several of the sustainable development goal targets. And beyond death and injury, exposure to any form of trauma, particularly in childhood, can increase the risk of mental illness and suicide, smoking, alcohol, substance abuse 
chronic diseases like heart disease, diabetes, and cancer, as well as social problems such as poverty, crime, and violence. So it's for these reasons preventing injuries and violence, including by breaking intergenerational cycles of violence, goes beyond avoiding the physical injury to contributing to substantial health, social, and economic gains. So I just wanted to add that in um, and uh, before I moved on to the mental health, because again, I think sometimes we really, we don't, we don't look closely enough at, at some of the, the more obvious or what I'll call the low hanging fruit. And uh, maybe we need to return to the basics for that. Do you have any questions on that? No, and I appreciate, you know, you sharing those statistics because it really is, you know, staggering how violence impacts us, um, you know, not only physically, but emotionally, um, mentally, spiritually. I mean, it just goes beyond so many levels. Um, so I, I do I really appreciate you sharing those statistics. Absolutely. Well, when we talk about mental health and emotional well-being and where this place is placed in global health concerns, um, according to Weinberg, an article in 2017 and his team of researchers, Globally, the majority of those who need mental health care worldwide lack access to high quality mental health services. So stigma, human resource shortages, fragmented service delivery models, lack of research capacity for implementation and policy change contribute to the current mental health treatment gap. So the authors they described in this really good article, how health systems in low and middle income countries or LMICs are addressed, how they're addressing mental health gaps and further identifying challenges and priority areas for future research. They did identify four priority areas for focused attention to diminish the mental health treatment gap and to improve access to high quality mental health services globally. So first is diminishing pervasive stigma. So we're all probably familiar with Goffman's work on stigma. Um, they build that right into the study and, and then looking at building mental health system treatment and research capacity, implementing prevention programs to decrease the incidence of mental disorders, and finally establishing sustainable scale-up of public health systems to improve access to mental health treatment using evidence-based interventions. Thank you. Yes, I think, you know, mental health, it, it is so important that we we look at the services that are out there and and really try to enhance and to add services, you know, we're able because we just really, you know, as a nation, as a globe, we really do not have um, the services to to help those with mental health. And, you know, a lot of those individuals end up um, being institutionalized in in prison or or jail because um they end up their behaviors are not controlled and um and then it, it's just a vicious cycle so thank you thank you so much what implications do the various non-infectious global health concerns um how do they affect advanced nursing practice both locally and globally yeah, I think it's that's a great question, and it's one that we can address, you know, throughout our program and uh, as we all move forward. Um, 
as nurses. Um, so, you know, first I want to look at um, the importance of physical health when we consider non-infectious global health issues, um, because that's a good segue into, in, into that question about how advanced practice nurses can Im, uh, impact. So while it's often overlooked as a public health issue due to historical focus on communicable, communicable and more immediately life-threatening diseases such as HIV, AIDS, and malaria, um, these are the common ones we hear when we talk about global health, and certainly they're important and have a place in our curriculum, but mental health has profound effects on an individual's quality of life, physical and social well-being, and economic productivity. Because psychological disorders also affect families and communities of the mentally ill, understanding the effects of mental illness on individual patients and social systems is necessary for the improvement of mental health care systems and of course, the development of effective mental health care delivery programs. So how does nursing fit into this? So advanced practice nurses, we're in unique positions to help families who live with abuse, but may lack resources and knowledge about the most effective interventions. They may become cynical and frustrated with feelings of futility when faced with the repeating patterns associated with the cycle of violence. Um, you know, Really what I think on that is the goals are really to promote more comprehensive understanding. You know, when we talk about inter, inter partner violence, you know, these are things it's, it's non-communicable, it's not infectious, but it really goes uh, at a global level, really it flies under the radar, meaning how can we as nurses go in in, in this area of non-infectious disease so we're talking about social systems here and interpersonal violence, which we know is, or interpartner violence, which we know it's rampant um, throughout the world. Uh, nurses can make these, we're perfectly positioned to make changes in education, practice, research, policy. It's really adv advocacy and getting involved at that global level, um, just calling out and working on on concerns that we see here in our own backyard. And then if we magnify those in some parts of the rest of the world, uh, it really becomes it, it becomes overwhelming. So another example I have for that is when we think about maternal and, and, and infant health throughout the world. You know, over the past decade, we've made substantial progress in newborn health and in preventing uh, stillbirths or maternal death including in countries with the highest burdens of mortality. More mothers and their babies can now access effective health care during and after pregnancy because of advanced practice nurses. About 80% of all ch uh, child uh, infant deliveries around the world are by nurses, 80%. Um, yet we are far from our goal of ending preventable newborn deaths and stillbirths, reaching that goal in 2030. And half of all under five deaths still occur in the first month of life, and two million stillbirths occur every year. Times of health crises, such as COVID-19 pandemics, reveal the weaknesses of health systems and threaten to turn back a decade of hard-won progress. So there's a really, really good initiative out there. It's called the Every Newborn Action Plan, or ENAP. It provides countries with a roadmap for ending preventable newborn deaths and stillbirths and reducing disability by 2030. These are primarily led by nurses. Um, you know, they include services for 
looking at every pregnant woman has four or more antenatal care contacts. Every birth is attended by a skilled health prof professional or personnel. Every woman and newborn receives early routine postnatal care within two days. And finally, every small and every sick newborn receives care. So, you know, I just sort of leave you with that thinking about on a global perspective or a global stage. Um, when we talk, when we think about maternal infant health and still the millions of, 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 of casualties, um, we can do better than that. And nursing is really stepping up on a global level and going in and working with traditional birth attendants on reducing trauma, reducing injury, reducing death, which could, um, with the trauma and the injury also could lead to lifetime disability. So we really play an important role. Do you have any questions on that? The, those examples of inner partner um, violence and infant mortality and, and mother mortality um, are really just excellent examples of the importance of nursing, um, especially, you know, hearing that, you know, 80% of births are attended to by nurses. Um, again, it just really highlights the importance and the effects that nurses can play on these types of issues and both, you know, locally and then um, and globally. So thank you. I, I do appreciate that. Anything that you wanted to say, Dr. Rosenberg, in, in wrap up and closure? Well, Dr. Hawken, I, again, I appreciate uh, allowing me the time to just share a little bit of information about this. I think it can serve as a nice pathway or a guide uh, as students are, are really thinking broadly and looking for uh, exemplars when we step out of the infectious disease um, dominance of global health concerns. And we, and we really just, again, like I said, take a step back and think about the non-infectious um, disease and illness and disability that we as nurses, we can play a part in preventing. You know, these are not, it's not airborne, it's not um, droplet. These are, these are situations that with enhanced education, advocacy for policy change, just being the voice, letting folks know this is going on out there in our world. I think that that's the role of, of each of us as nurses. Thank you, Dr. Rosenberg, and thank you so much for your expertise and your time and your knowledge today. And thank you to those who are listening to our discussion. I am sure you have enjoyed this as much as I have, and take care. Thank you. Now that you've explored some important concepts related to your modules, if you have not done so already, please turn your attention to the course materials in your online course for additional application and practice of these concepts.